0: We'll take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Last week we ascended a a mountain, the treacherous terrain of Galatians 3 verses 15 through 22 or so where we found some technical details about the relationship of the law of God with the promises of God to Abraham, specifically, we found there that the law did not replace uh, the covenant to Abraham, and indeed, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, and thereby, we receive, because we're united to Christ, we receive all of the promised blessings of Abraham, and we saw... Uh, that the law was not at all about salvation to begin with, but about sin. The purpose of the law was to point out our sinfulness, our brokenness, and our need for his grace and his rescue. And then that sort of mountainous terrain led us up to the peak where we beheld glory. We saw four glorious realities of our inheritance in Christ, that we're united to Christ, we're one with him, we're sons of God, We're one with each other, the people of God, and we're heirs of God. that is, recipients of the inheritance that he has promised. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we're still standing on that same mountain peak. We're still looking out at the same scene, but now we're zeroing in on a particular aspect of the horizon, as it were. It's like we've got a focal point in our binoculars and we're zooming in Uh, to get a closer look. And so the verses that we'll look at today, chapter four, verses one through seven, specifically expound for us the status and experience of sonship. What does it mean to be sons of God? And here's the main idea. I'll give it to you up front, and then hopefully everything I say after this will simply reflect and expand on this idea. The idea is this. In Christ, you receive all the rights and delights Of Sonship might be a little cheesy to be a rhyming thing like that but it might help you remember it in Christ you receive all of the rights and delights of sonship that is the status and the experience of being God's sons J.I. Packer perhaps the greatest theologian of the last hundred years said this about the doctrine of adoption and sonship he says if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It could be said that our understanding, our recognition, our appreciation of being God's sons is the most fundamental aspect of our Christian life and of our relationship to him. I think you'll see that as we go through these verses. Let me read for you all seven of our verses, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and then we'll take these apart and see what the Lord has for us here. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In Christ you receive all the rights and delights of sonship. Let's look first at the rights or the status of of sonship. And this is primarily the work of the Son, work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, to provide for us the status of sonship. Now, he begins by saying, I mean that, which obviously points us back to what he had just said. He's still helping us understand the same reality, namely, that because we are in Christ, we are recipients of God's promises to Abraham. That's what he had just said. And so he's expanding here. What do these promises include? And it's good for us to note then that the theme of inheritance is woven throughout these verses. If you read back through chapter 3, you'd find over and over reference to the promises made to Abraham, the promised blessing that would come to the Gentiles, the receiving of the promised spirit, the inheritance that was to come. You'd find that over and over in chapter 3. And so he's continuing here this theme of inheritance. Chapter 3 ended with the statement, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And to be an heir means to be in line to receive an inheritance, right? To say we're heirs implies that we have the right to an inheritance. And so that's what he expands on in these verses. And he mainly expands on it through an analogy of a child heir and a slave in the same household. Now, obviously, this is a culturally located example. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, a slave would often work in the home of a wealthy person. They would hire this slave to guide and guard the, the children and to sort of take care of their belongings until the child was old enough to take possession of the inheritance himself. And so the child heir... He says, in this case, is not really much different than a slave. In his experience as a kid growing up, he may be vaguely aware of the inheritance he has coming, or he may not, but he doesn't have any access to it, right? The child who's heir to the inheritance has no way to get it because, he says, a date has been set by his father, at which point the son would take possession of that. Inheritance, and so in this way, he's much the same as the the slave in that household. He's uh, he's uh, he has no real standing in the family, no real access to his father's wealth in terms of this inheritance. And he applies that reality to us, to to Christians. He says, in the same way, we verse three. In the same way, we also, when we were children. We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this essentially would have been before Christ came. And we'll talk more about that in verse 4. But without, we were without access to the Father's estate, as it were. We were entrapped under the curse of the law, which he told us about in chapter 3, verses 10 and 13. Indeed, that's what he said. Christ came to redeem us from by becoming a curse for us. The curse of the law essentially was this you must obey all of the law or you will be judged by it that's the curse of the law and we're sinners and we can't keep the law so we will be judged we will be condemned and thus the curse and so he says before christ before the date set by his father we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world that's an interesting phrase paul uses it a few times a couple times in this book and a few times elsewhere in colossians as well and he seems to be referring to probably two things maybe two sides of a coin the first with relation to jewish people specifically would have been the law of god as in the mosaic law that god had given to his people apart from christ so they were entrapped by the principles of obeying this law and being unable to do it. That's, that's the first part of what it means to be enslaved to the elementary principles. But he's speaking, remember, to a mostly Gentile audience in this book. And so when he refers to elementary principles, there's a sense in which this could have to do with demonic pagan idolatry the worship of idols and the the various religious festivals that would have been common in in those cities at that time. And so, interestingly, he seems to equate the law of God, in a sense, with pagan idolatry, the pagan religion of the Gentiles. Not because he regards the law in itself as evil or problematic. He's already asserted that. and he asserts it elsewhere in Romans chapter 7. The law itself is good. So he's not saying that the law is evil or idolatrous. But in the sense that imposing the law, that is saying you must obey this law in order to be made right with God, is tantamount to idolatry. It's just as useful. It's just as effective in drawing us near to God, which is not at all. If we think we're going to earn our righteousness before God by obeying the law, as he's taken pains already to demonstrate, we are fooling ourselves. We are under a curse. And in the same way, worshiping a false god who doesn't really exist is useless in terms of gaining a true standing with the one true God. So self-righteousness by law-keeping and pagan idol worship are equally impotent, unable to save us. And that seems to be what he means by saying that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So to his Jewish readers and himself, he'd say we were trying to keep the law of God, but we couldn't do it. To his Gentile readers, he's saying you were probably wrapped up in pagan idol worship, and it was just as worthless. It kept you removed from God in just the same way. But, praise God for little conjunctions like this, but, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. The fullness of time in verse 4 corresponds to the date set by the Father in Paul's child heir analogy, right? He said he's, he's heir to the inheritance, but he doesn't have access to it until the date set by his father. And now, referring to our spiritual lives and our relationship to God, he says, when the fullness of time had come, in other words, the date that had been set by our father, God sent forth his son. And we have Beautiful verses here expressing and expanding on Christ's incarnation, that is the taking on of human flesh, and redemption. And we see how Christ's incarnation and redemption completely change our story. Our story had been we were enslaved, we were under guardians and managers, we were not able to Uh, save ourselves. We were uh, apart from, separated from the the inheritance that he had for us. And now in Christ, everything changes. I want you to notice that the Son of God became like us. He became like us. Look at there in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, two little phrases, born of woman, Born under the law. He became like us in two ways. Like us in nature. That is, by sharing a common humanity. To say that he was born of woman is to say he was born just like the rest of us. He was a human being with an earthly mother. So the fact that he was born of woman is to say that he took on a common humanity. He was like us in our human nature. Hebrews 2.14 says that he partook of flesh and blood. And then in verse 17 it says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In order for Jesus to represent us before God as a high priest, he had to become like us. He had to be one of us in order to carry our nature into the presence of God and to redeem it. The early church theologian Athanasius famously said, what is not assumed is not redeemed, meaning whatever part of human nature Christ didn't take on to himself in the incarnation would thus have been unredeemed. And what he's arguing for by stating the negative is that all of human nature, every aspect of what it means to be human, our flesh and our mind and our will and our soul, all of that has been taken on by Christ as in he shared with us in those things and therefore redeemed. So all of human nature is redeemed in Jesus Christ because he became like us. So he became like us in nature born of woman and he became like us in situation that is he shared a common predicament with us and you see that reflected in the phrase that he was born under the law he was born under the law now that phrase under the law corresponds to what he said earlier about the child heir being under guardians and managers right so he had this inheritance coming but he had no access to it because he was under a guardian he was under a manager And in the same way, spiritually speaking, we lived under the law. That is, the the law, as he said in chapter 3, was our guardian until Christ came. And Jesus lived in that very same condition. He lived under the law. Frank Thielman says that to be under the law is, quote, to be under the just sentence of death that the law renders against those who violate it. Christ lived under that same burden, that same curse. The key difference, of course, is that Jesus didn't violate the law. He was subject to the same curse in that if he had broken the law, he himself would have been judged by that same law just as we are. But Christ was without sin. Christ perfectly obeyed the law. Christ fulfilled the law in every part. So his record of obedience was unstained and perfect in every way. So while he lived under the law, under the curse of the law, he succeeded where every other person had failed in keeping the law in every part. So the Son of God, whom God sent forth at the fullness of time, became like us, like us in human nature, like us in the common predicament of living under the law. And he became like us, we're told, in order to redeem us, in order to redeem those who were under the law. It's the same word that Paul used back in chapter 3, verse 13, when he said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, meaning to purchase, to buy back. Redemption is paying a legal debt that is owed on behalf of another to release him from his obligation. So we were indebted to the law, right? Because we had broken it, so we were under its curse. We were enslaved to it, and Christ paid the necessary price to remove us out from under the curse of the law. He purchased us back. He did that by his own sinless life and by his death as a sacrifice for sin in our place. He became like us in order to redeem us. I also want you to see that Christ redeemed us in order to adopt us. This is where we start to get to the real heart of what these verses are all about. He says that he was, uh, excuse me, was born of woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law so that... Okay, here's the ultimate purpose for why he became like us, why he redeemed us. So that we might receive adoption as sons. That was the point. That was the end goal for Jesus in his incarnation, in his obedient living, in his death on the cross as a sacrifice, in his resurrection. All of that was to the end that we would receive adoption as sons. Before we talk about that adoption in detail, I want you to see an important aspect of this verse, the, the double blessings, if you will, of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. The work of Christ in his incarnation is not just a negative, but also a positive. It's not just that he bought us back from slavery. It's not just that he sort of wiped our slate clean. That would have been amazing, That would have been good and merciful and gracious of him. But it's not just that he has released us from righteousness by law and relieved us of sin's penalties. It's also that he has adopted us as sons. The righteous standing of Christ himself is a sign to us who believe. We are completely welcomed we completely, fully belong in God's family. The full inheritance of the Son becomes ours. So it's not just that he wipes the slate clean, it's that he gives us his perfect righteousness. It's not, the gospel is not just a clean slate or a second chance. It's an established record of perfect obedience. That's what becomes yours when you trust in Jesus Christ. It's not like, you might think, a... A criminal who's been incarcerated for a long time who receives a pardon and then finds himself on the street with only his own resources of strength and determination to keep himself clean as it were christ's work on our behalf both cleanses us of sin's guilt and bestows on us the blessings of the son's inheritance. It's both negative in that it removes the curse of the law, removes the stain of sin, and it's positive in that it, on top of that, gives us the status of sonship. It gives us all the blessings of Christ's perfect righteousness and obedience. He became like us in order to redeem us, and he redeemed us in order to adopt us. Okay, so what does that mean? It says that we might receive adoption as sons. I want you to notice something else here. He doesn't say that he's adopted us as children, but as sons. And that's an important detail because it tells us what sonship entails. Namely, full rights to our father's estate. Because that's what the child heir would have received. That's what he was in line for. Everything that the father had would, be, would belong to his son one day at the date set by the father. All of this is yours. Everything that's mine is yours. All of my resources and status and strength, are they belong to you now. You have access to all of these things. You fully belong in this family, and all that is mine will be yours. That's the, that's what the status of sonship. It's to be in line for the inheritance that he's purposed for you, that he's promised to you. A divine inheritance in Christ belongs to all those who, who are his children by faith. This is why I said last week, as a teaser of sorts, that it's good news that Paul didn't say uh, that we were all children of God or that we are all sons and daughters of God, but that we were sons of God. That distinction means that women who trust in Christ receive the very same inheritance as men who trust in Christ. There's not a second-class kingdom citizen thing going on with between men and women. Like if if it was you're adopted as sons and daughters, you could imply from the nature of adoption and the inheritance that was going on in this time, you could imply, well, so men who follow Jesus have this full inheritance and women are sort of included just as a gracious tag along. That is not the situation. Men, women, boys, girls who trust in Jesus Christ receive the fullness of God's inheritance. Everything that it means to be a follower of Jesus, to belong to his family, to be in his household is equally true of all human beings who are trusting in Christ, regardless of their gender, which is something of what he meant in chapter 3, verse 28, when he said that in Christ there's no Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free. Those distinctions don't change your experience of God's grace in Christ. They come equally and and evenly to you, no matter what your status is in that sense. Christ adopted us all, men and women, as sons, meaning that every person who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation receives the rights of sonship. There's not a confusion or a conflation of gender here. But the point is, all people trusting in Christ receive the fullness of God's inheritance to them. All the promised blessings of Abraham come to men and women who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Because culturally and legally, the son was the heir to his father's inheritance, so you in Christ have the rights of sonship. I, women, that doesn't mean you got to start walking around saying, well, I guess I'm a son of God. Right, that would be a little awkward. But you do need to understand that your status before God is that you have the rights of sonship. You have the full inheritance of God's grace flowing to you in Christ. One of my favorite Disney movies is The Lion King. There's a scene toward the beginning where Mufasa takes Simba out onto this cliff and they're overlooking all of the the land before him. And Mufasa says, everything the light touches is our kingdom. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. And he says, one day, Simba, the sun will set on my time and will rise with you as the new king. And Simba is just amazed. He says, then all of this will be mine? And Mufasa says, everything. It's like that everything the light touches as it were everything the sun touches everything that belongs to God the son belongs to you because you're united to him by faith because you've been adopted as sons in God's family that's the rights of sonship the status of sonship you are his child you are his heir you are in line to receive all the promised blessings to Abraham at the fullness of time. Some of those blessings we enjoy now. We're welcomed into his family. We're forgiven of our sin. We're given his obedience. We have the, the body of Christ, his family, to share this life with together. But some of these blessings will are yet to be enjoyed in the new creation, the new heaven and new earth that's to come when Christ returns. There's a day coming when all of these blessings will be fully and finally realized and enjoyed. But now we live in this tension and this brokenness where we experience some of those blessings, but we are still beleaguered by sin and by brokenness and by the suffering of this world. And that's part of life in the world in which we live right now. Everything that is Christ's is yours. You are a fellow heir with Christ, with legal rights to all the Father's estate, all his wealth, all his resources. And remember. What we've been saying throughout this book, this inheritance belongs to you not by your frenzied attempt at keeping the law and earning God's blessing, but because in Christ he's redeemed you from the law and adopted you as his son. It is God's free grace in Christ that he's poured out on you for his own good pleasure that has secured for you all these blessings. Tim Keller says, our inheritance is not a prize to be won. It is a gift from Christ. And 1 John 3, 1 famously says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. What kindness, what extravagant grace. We haven't just been redeemed from the curse of the law. We've been adopted as sons. In Christ Christ. Through the work of God the Son, you have been given the status of sonship. But It doesn't just stop there. It's not just the legal rights and here's what you have, and I, I hope that makes you feel a little bit better. We also gain the experience of sonship, the delights of sonship, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to look with me at verse 6 again. Because you are sons... Right, that's objectively true. That's settled reality of who you are. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has sent. This is the exact same Greek verb that was used for sending forth his son. God, in the fullness of time, God, sent, God the Father sent forth his son. And now, because we are sons, God has sent forth his spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but it's also interesting that he calls it the Spirit of his Son. God has sent the Spirit just as he sent the Son, and which tells us that the Holy Spirit himself is both a part of, a portion of the Christian's inheritance and the guarantee of that inheritance that's to come. We were told in Galatians 3, 14, uh, that the Gentiles would receive the promised Spirit through faith. So it is some aspect of what was promised was the Spirit himself. When the Spirit of God comes to live in a new believer, that is a part of what was promised to us. Right? Paul said in, in the first uh, verses in chapter 3, that you received the Holy Spirit, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith, right? So the coming of the Spirit of God into our lives is a portion of what was promised and of what we we'll receive. But as we heard earlier that Elisha read to us from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14, we are also sealed by the Holy Spirit until we receive the inheritance. So the Spirit of God is both a portion of our inheritance, what's been promised to us, and it's Uh, He is the seal, the guarantee that we will one day receive the fullness of that inheritance. And so God sent the Spirit of His Son crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of His Son into our hearts. I think it is significant that it's the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ we are God's sons just as Christ is God's son. When it says that he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, it's as though he's, he's saying this is how the rights, the status of sonship are actually applied to your life and heart. It's because the spirit who proceeds from the father and the son, to use the ancient language, the spirit comes uh, from father and son and into our hearts to Uh, to appropriate all of the resources and blessings of sonship. The ways that the father loves and relates to his only son are the ways that he loves and relates to his adoptive sons, you and me. So, for example, at Jesus' baptism, when the voice of God comes from the clouds and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because the spirit of his son lives in you, God says the same thing about you. I wonder if you know that. I wonder if you're aware of his pleasure. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Keller suggests that the very reason that Paul uses Abba here, which is an Aramaic term for father, it's kind of a baby talk word. Abba. It's very simple. It's, it's something that a baby would be able to say at a very young age, right? It's a version of, kind of like daddy, something like dada, something like that. So it's kind of, it's an Aramaic baby talk word. And Aramaic is the language that would have been spoken in Palestine during the days of Jesus. And so uh, Jesus himself used the word Abba in his own prayers, so, for example, in Mark chapter 14, we have an example of Jesus praying and addressing God, the Father, as Abba. With this very familiar, dependent kind of language. And Paul's writing to a mostly Gentile audience, but using an Aramaic term. And so Keller suggests that the very reason that he uses the word Abba here is to demonstrate that our relationship to God, the Father, is much the same as jesus Christ's relationship is to his father jesus is able to address the father as abba in this intimate knowing way and in the same way the spirit of his son who is now in our hearts cries out to god in the same way in the same language we have the right and privilege of relating to and addressing god the father in the same intimate familiar way as Jesus himself does. And that implies a personal, relational sense of assurance and belonging, a confidence that we belong to him. This is beyond the sort of legal status and what's true of you objectively because you've been adopted as sons. This is onto how we experience what it means to live as sons of God. There's a a warmth and a familiarity, and a confidence here that should characterize our experience of God's love. When we speak of having a relationship with God, this is theologically what we're most often probably talking about. It's the inner experience of the Spirit of God assuring our hearts that we belong to God the Father as His true Son's. He's not just tolerating us. He's not just letting us come along for a while. He's not rolling his eyes annoyed at all of our nonsense. He welcomes us. He loves us. He embraces us. He delights in us. And this is how we experience sonship toward God because of his spirit in us. Paul expands on this uh, in a book that he writes a little bit later, a few years down the road, in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. You'll hear all of the same themes, but it's a little bit fuller in some ways. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There we go again with being enslaved to the law. The spirit that you've received is not of slavery, which leads to fear. Why would it lead to fear? Because I know I'm going to be judged. If I mess up, God is going to smite me. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then listen to this. He says, the spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has coming to him by virtue of his status as God's son and by virtue of what he's accomplished and purchased in his redemptive work, all of that is coming to us too. He shares his glory with us. We are joint heirs with Christ. And the experience of that is that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, which I think means something like He assures us, He persuades us, He convinces us, you belong to me, you're my child, I love you, I welcome you, I embrace you, I delight in you, I'm not annoyed by you, I'm not tired of you. I hope you know that is God's heart toward all of His children. We get tired of ourselves, we annoy ourselves. We've probably had experiences with earthly fathers that maybe make it Oh yeah, God's probably a little aggravated with me right now No You are his son He loves you He takes pleasure in you To quote Keller one more time He says, just as a young child simply assumes that a parent loves them and is there for them and never doubts the openness and security of daddy's strong arms, so Christians can have an overwhelming boldness and certainty that God loves them endlessly. This is the experience of being God's son. The status, the rights of sonship are all of those blessings that God promised to Abraham that were fulfilled in Christ that now come to us partly now and fully in the future in the eternal kingdom That's the status, that's the rights of sonship. The experience of sonship is his spirit bearing witness to ours. You're mine, it's okay. Rest, trust, relax. You don't have to work so hard. Trust me. Last thing I want you to notice before we we conclude is the, the Trinitarian shape of this ministry. It's always worth noting where we see passages in the Bible that point out to us the triune nature of our God. Because you might know this, the word trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. It's a cardinal core Christian doctrine, but it's not in the Bible by word. That word was coined by a theologian in like the 4th century named Tertullian. So it's a good word, triunity, right? It's three and one all together. But there are passages throughout the Bible that express the reality of God is three persons in one being, in one God. And this is one of those passages. You can see very clearly that our adoption as sons was planned by God the Father. He's the one who set the date. right? He's the one who, who had that fullness of time moment to send forth the Son. He is the one who sends the Son and then sends the Spirit into our hearts. God the Father has planned for our adoption. You can see clearly that our adoption is purchased by God the Son. It is the Son's work in his incarnation, in his obedient life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the grave. It is the Son's work that purchases for us, secures for us the status of sonship. So our adoption has been planned by God the Father, it's been purchased by God the Son, and it's been applied by God the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who in our hearts cries out to Him as Abba, Father. It's His Spirit that bears witness to our spirit that we belong to Him. It's His Spirit that seals and guarantees our inheritance until we receive it in full. The triune God has planned, purchased, and applied your redemption and your adoption. This is how secure you are in God's family. The three persons of the triune God have worked in unity from eternity past to secure your place in his family and to bestow upon you all the blessings of sonship, the promises made to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, and granted to you by faith. In Christ you receive all the rights and delights of sonship. Now, we've got to ask the question, is everyone a son of God? Is this true equally of all human beings? You hear people say sometimes, we're all God's children. All people made by God belong to him. And there's a sense, of course, in which all human beings were created by God and bear his image. And so, they belong to him, are accountable to him. And they receive, indeed, the fatherly kindness of God and many common graces. But this is not true in the same way of all people. The rights and delights of sonship, the status and experience of sonship that we're talking about today that Paul is celebrating in Galatians 4 is reserved for those who receive adoption as his sons by repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. The beginning of John's gospel and John 1, verses 11 to 13, it says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who... Receive the rights and delights of sonship in this way are those who have repented of their sins and are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Friend, won't you receive him? Won't you come to him with humble confession and simple faith and so become a child of God? If you haven't done that or if you aren't sure, hear the voice of God, the Spirit of God calling to you, drawing you to himself. Come in faith and receive adoption as sons. If you do belong to him, for those of us who are his, be comforted. I'll conclude with a quote from Frank Thielman. God has freely adopted each one of his people into his family. God the Father has sent forth God the Son to redeem his people, and he has sent forth God the Holy Spirit to assure them of his tender fatherly care. We don't need to do anything to win him over. He's already on our side. We should simply live our lives in gratitude to him for his love. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we praise you that you have made us yours through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have bestowed upon us all of the blessings, all of the rights and the delights of sonship. We praise you that because of the work that Jesus has done in our place to redeem us from the curse of the law, and to bestow upon us this adoption as your sons. Lord, we thank you that everything is changed. We have new natures, new identities, new destinies, new callings, new futures. We praise you, Lord, that your home is our home. Your resources are our resources. Teach us day by day how to live in the good of this reality spirit of God we pray help us to experience this reality in a more in a deeper way in the days to come than we have before help us to rest to trust to delight in the knowledge that we belong to God our father and nothing can change that in Christ's name we pray amen